0: Good morning to all of you. We are going to be in Gospel of John this morning, chapter 15, if you will find your way there. And as you are turning, David, thank you for those kind words. You are a kind man. And uh, as he mentioned, uh, we do have a new little one at home, so I am solo today. Uh, my family does say hello from Reesville. Hopefully, they better be watching also. But uh, we, uh, as he mentioned, we, we do have a new little one. 2020 was boring, evidently, so we thought we'd spice it up and add a, add a baby to the mix. So that's what we did. Um, she is, uh, Bethany was born in, uh, in June. You've met my other children, Abby, Noah, Hannah, and Sarah. And uh, I hope we can all be with you again. And you can meet our newest Remember when she's a, she's a little bit bigger. So thank you for allowing me to be here. Thank you to your pastor for uh, for allowing me to be here. I, uh, I still say that um, we miss the Mooneyhams. And I don't mean just the Tabernacle. I mean the Talberts miss the Mooneyhams. They are our dearest friends, and, uh, and and we miss them greatly. But again, God in his kind providence has brought them here, and we are thankful for uh, for the ministry that they have, and for the love and uh, and care that you have uh, have given to them, so we are we are thankful to the Lord for that. So, if you have found your way to John chapter fifteen, we are going to continue today your study through John. Uh, two weeks ago, I think Isaac started this chapter. We're going to almost finish it today. We're we're not going to quite get to the to the last verse, but we're gonna we're gonna get really really close. And if you have found your place, we're going to begin in verse 18 of John 15 and read down through verse 25. And uh, I am reading from the ESV, so uh, you may have something a little bit different, but uh, just wanted to let you know that. Beginning in verse 18 of John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you On account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, then they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now, I know you have been in John for some time. Um, Our Sunday school class was in John for some time. We finished earlier this year our study through that. And, And nearly every week that we were together and studying that and, and, uh, and opening through different verses, walking through those, I would remind our class that the Holy Spirit is gracious and John is gracious to us because at the end of this book, he tells us why he wrote this book. He tells us the point of this book. He tells us his purpose for that. In, in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Thankfully, we know that. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit inspired John to write that and include that. So as we study John, we keep that in mind. As we study John, we say, all right, how does this fit in with what John's point is? And that th- those two verses are or what uh, what his point is. He's building, as it were, a, a court case. He is compiling evidence. He has chosen, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, certain signs, certain sayings, certain teachings to to include in his account so that not only the first century reader and hearer would recognize this case for Christ, but fast forward 2,000 years to those of us gathered in Wake Chapel in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina on this day, it's the same thing. It's the same point. It's the same reason that these things are included in John's account. He tells us that God's only begotten Son, truly God, truly man, has come. He has stepped out of heaven to pitch his tent, to tabernacle with his people, so that the invisible God can be seen in his visible Son. He, he came... To live a perfect life. He came to fulfill the law. We're going to talk about that today. He came to fulfill prophecy. We're going to talk about that today. He came to die on a Roman cross. We're going to talk about that today. All part of the plan. He came to resurrect out of a borrowed tomb three days later. And pay the debt that we can't pay. Offering us forgiveness of sin. Offering us eternal life. Because of what he has done what he has accomplished. So thankfully, John helps keep our mind right, and as we read through his book, we can, we can go back and see how John is compiling these things. We've seen you've gone through several signs. You've gone through several I am statements. I think last two weeks ago when Isaac was, was doing this, uh, beginning of this chapter, you, you got to the last one. We're going to to talk about that in a little bit. But as as we read John, we have to understand, too, that the first 12 chapters of John cover about three years. We don't begin with the Christmas story, as we do some of the other Gospels, but we pick up with Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist is the beginning of the book of John and is explaining that there is one coming. I'm not him, it's not me, but there's one coming after me, and that's who I'm pointing back to. And when he shows up, he introduces him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From that, we go through and we see the signs that John recorded. We see the teachings that John recorded. We see the conflicts with the Jews and and with different groups of folks as Jesus is teaching. And we get all the way up to through chapter 12, and that, that time is covered. Then we get to chapter 13, and things slow down considerably. Chapter 13 to chapter 17 is one night. One night. Three years drops down to one night. A single night that Jesus spends alone with his 12 disciples at the beginning, now it's 11. And he's teaching them. He's comforting them. He is preparing them. They don't have any idea what's coming. They have no frame of reference for understanding a Messiah that's going to die. That doesn't compute with their Jewish mind. And so Jesus is teaching them one-on-one or one-on-twelve and telling them, guys, you're not going to understand, but you will. And you can trust me. You can believe me. Chapter 14, he tells them that he's, the Father will send them another helper, talking about the Holy Spirit, who will be with them, who will live in them, indwell them as believers. And even though Christ is going away and they won't see him anymore, they can rest in the fact that they will live because he lives. So that's where we have gotten to so far. Then two weeks ago, the beginning of chapter 15 is what Isaac covered. I am the true vine, the last of the I am statements in in John and he explains to them Christ is is teaching and explaining to them that just as a branch has to be attached to the vine not only to live but to bear fruit so too must the believer be attached to Christ That, that life must be obtained from Christ and that connection to the vine they are to abide in him because of that connection. He goes on then to explain to the disciples that you must, in verse 12, you must love one another, but it doesn't in there. He makes it a whole lot harder, as I have loved you. That's a little bit of a different twist. But Isaac set this up as, as this chapter covering three relationships. He's covered two, we'll cover the last one. He covered the first one, which was their relationship with Christ, abiding in the vine for life and for fruit. The second is their relationship with one another. Love one another. And then today, the verses that we'll cover um, are the disciples' relationship with the world around them and what they are called to do. So before we begin and and jump in with, with verse 18, I want to ask that you pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it, we thank you for the grace that has been extended to us just because we have a copy of it. Lord, we thank you for the words that we have read today. We thank you for the words we're going to read as we look at other passages. And Lord, we ask now that your spirit would be our teacher, that as we read these things, your spirit would help us to understand them not only in our head, but in our heart, and that we would be able to recover these things and to retrieve these things into the future, both for our joy and for our witness. Lord, we, again, thank you for our time together and ask that you be honored and glorified in what we say. In Christ's name, amen. So, with all of that, let's start by defining a couple of terms. Well, really one term. We're going to start in verse 18. If the world hates you. Now, who is the world? Does that mean the world as we know it, the globe? Uh, No. When, When Jesus is talking in this context, the world is that that is in rebellion, active rebellion against the things of God. That's who he's talking about. He'll talk later and has talked previously in the book of John that the disciples are in the world. But not of the world. There's a distinction, and we'll look at that. But as we begin, we need to keep that in mind. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, think of the contrast. Just look one verse up, verse 17, and look at the contrast in in themes that Christ is teaching on. Verse 17 These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You can't get any more opposite than that. It, it, it's turning around completely. It is an a, a, a absolutely stark contrast. Just as a true disciple is marked by their love for one another, the world, those in rebellion against God, are mar- marked by their hatred. Marked by the, their persecution of those who are not of the world. So he begins detailing the world's reaction to the disciples. His purpose here is to eliminate doubt. Do not think that you will have a scot-free, easy, breezy life. It's not going to happen. It's very encouraging, right? Thank you, Lord. That's exactly what I wanted to hear but he he's he's detailing this reaction. He is eliminating surprises. He wants them to know what's coming. It's coming. He begins the verse with if and he, he is assuming this condition to be true. If the world hates you, you could read it if the world hates you and it will, because that's 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 the truth. And think of it in this context. Think of the, uh, the original reader. If John writes this at the end of the first century, he is an old man by this time, thinking back on the things, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit that he witnessed as an apostle and as a, as a follower of Christ. But think of the things that, that have happened since this meeting. Peter has been martyred. Paul has been martyred. Many of the disciples have been martyred. John is an old man and he's the last one. So so while we can think of this intellectually and we can understand what John is telling us or, or recording what Christ is telling us, this would have been a bitter truth for the people who were reading this. They could think back. Think of the ones that are not recorded in scripture. They could think back, yes, I remember this man, this woman, who stood for Christ, and it cost them everything. Also, by this time, we would, we would be well into the era of Christians being martyred by Rome. That would be nothing new in the time that these writers or these readers are, re- are, are, are hearing this for the first time. They would have been well acquainted, constant companions of suffering, constant companions of persecution, And they read this and they see encouragement. And you think, this is not a very encouraging verse. No, on its face, maybe not. But think of it in these terms. They know this is coming, but they also know my master has walked this way before. My master has gone this way before I have been called to go this way. So in that way, it would be an encouragement. Verse 19, carrying on, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So verse 18 begins with a condition he assumes to be true. Verse 19 begins with a condition he assumes to be false. If we read verse 18, if the world hates you and they will, we could read verse 19 like this. If you are of the world and you're not, well, you say, how do you know that? Well, if you keep reading the verse. The world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. If they were of the world, if they were conformed as to use some terms that Paul would use, conform to the world, conform to those who are actively in rebellion against Christ, actively in rebellion or in rebellion against his father, then the world would offer its love distorted as though it may be and we can see that we can understand that we we can even see today the things that the world calls love are a lot different than what scripture tells us. you can't call anyone to repentance you can't call anything sin that's unloving to say anything like that so the love that the world professes to have is not really love at all Previously in John, even just a few verses up in in verse 16 of this chapter, he says, You did not choose me, Christ again teaching, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whenever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Why are they called to bear fruit? That's what he tells them. That's what he Explains to them. Because Christ has called them out, has called them to salvation, they get no glory for their own salvation. They don't even get credit for it. It was his idea, it was his work, it was his calling. All of these things, all credit for their salvation is for God and his glory. We are called out just as they are. We are called out of the world to. Spread the gospel as we are going. Spread that message. We're going to talk about that message again in a little bit. But he's explaining to them here that if they were of the world, the world would offer you what the world calls love. But he's already covered love in in the previous verses. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not Greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So we're, we're listening to Christ. And again, this is amazing to me that we get this glimpse into this private night. Again, it's Christ with his 12 disciples, now down to 11. He's been teaching them one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to deny me, all of you are going to scatter, and I'm going away. And we get a glimpse into that. So when he's telling us here, when he says this in, in verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, you, you immediately should, should think, all right, where did he say this? Well, some of it's not recorded. Sometimes he reminds them of things that he taught that, that the Holy Spirit did not deem uh, necessary to include in Scripture. But this one, thankfully, we can flip back a couple of chapters to chapter 13 and read this. Chapter 13, verse 16. Jesus is teaching. He has just washed their feet. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus is reminding them, remember a couple of hours ago when I washed your feet? Remember what I told you then? A servant is not greater than his master. Remember that? Well, then he was talking about service and humility, and it was bigger than that because he was teaching them about being cleansed and being cleaned. Well, now he's talking about it in terms of persecution, just as he mentioned back then. I've just washed your feet. The master, the son of God, has knelt down and washed your nasty feet, disciples. What sense does it make for you to fight among yourselves trying to get a place of honor? It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. This is the model. Now he's using it to talk about persecution when he tells them, If a disciple is living his life or her life in such a way that it emulates Christ so closely that the world notices, wait a minute, that's not what we can get behind. That message is not the one that we're comfortable saying. Then it stands to reason that that disciple, that servant would attract the same negative attention that the master attracted. It's clear that's what he's saying. The servant is not better than his master. You have have seen me persecuted. Now you will be persecuted. Uh, Up until now, the disciples have seen this. Clearly, we have read time and time and time again just in John. And you can flip to the other Gospels and see the same thing. But we have seen time and time and time again... Christ being persecuted mainly by the Jews who think they know better than what he's telling them. But up until now, he has been the one to receive all that. He has absorbed it. He has been the focal point. But again, the disciples don't know he's getting ready to be gone. He does. And so again, he's preparing them. This is coming to you. What you have seen happen to me is going to happen to you. The message is not changing. The messenger truly is not changing. It's still Christ through his word and through his spirit. But the face may look a little different. But it's coming. Make no mistake that it is coming. He is going to return to his father and very soon. So he is Working to make sure that his disciples know what's coming. The, the rest of this verse can be understood like this If they persecuted me, and many did, then they're going to persecute you. If they obeyed my word, and some did, then they'll obey yours too. Again, the servant is not greater than the master. But, verse 21. But all these things they will do to you. Why? On account of my name. Because they do not know who sent me. The the cause of the opposition to the disciples is, is made clear here. Just like we mentioned in the verse before. The message is not changing. The messenger is not changing. The word is not changing. And the response is not changing. They're going to be hated because of who Christ is. Their close association with him is all it takes. Their message of salvation that they're going to be commissioned to preach after he raises from the dead and goes back to heaven, that message is what gets them into trouble. Just look through Paul's letters. He has the same plan. Every town he comes to, hey, let me find a synagogue. Let me preach Christ. Let me get beat up and thrown out of town. And then let me find the next town. Rinse and repeat. That's how he does it. That's his life. That's his life is that persecution. Christ is explaining this to the disciples. It's not because they don't like you. It's not because you look funny or your hairstyle is crazy. It's because of me. They do this because of me. They persecute you, if that's what they're going to do, because of me. And they obey the things that you teach them also because of me. This is not about you. This is about me. Is what Christ is teaching them. And why do they do that? The end of the verse. Because they do not know him who sent me. Those of the world do not know the one who sent Jesus If they had known the Father as they claim they do, they would have recognized the revelation of God in Christ's incarnation. But instead, they are planning to kill him because they don't like it. And they don't know him or his Father. He's said that before also, but he's going to really bring that home in this last meeting together. Verse 22, he continues, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And th- Now, these, these are the verses that as we, y- you know, your pastor opens a book of the Bible and goes through it verse by verse by verse. That is a fantastic way the best, I'm convinced, way to study scripture. And it does a couple of things. It doesn't let you cheat. You don't get to skip. Because if I skip something, y'all go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, I'm reading this too. That's why you're supposed to do that. Don't believe what I'm telling you. Read this book, be a good Berean, and, and make sure that what whoever's standing up here is saying is in here is actually in here. But verses like this make us... It keeps us honest. We have to stand back and go, now, wait a minute. Is Jesus saying here that had he not come, the world would be left in sinless perfection? At its face, if you read this, you could almost make that mistake. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Well, then why'd you come? Things would have been great. Is that what he's saying, though? Of course not. Of course not. He is talking specifically. We have got to be clear and accurate. And I want everyone to, to, to follow along with what I'm saying here. We've got to be accurate. He is not saying that if he had not come, the world would continue in sinless perfection. He's not saying that. What he is saying is since he has come, since he has lived, since he has taught, since he has done these signs in the presence of all these who are persecuting him, then they have carried out a very specific sin, namely rejecting God's Son, who is standing right in front of them. That's what he's saying. Wholesale rejection of God's gracious gracious revelation in Christ. The the Jews, especially in John's Gospel, the Jews, when, when we run up on a group of them in here, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, whatever their, their ilk, whatever that group is, when, you run, when we run up on them, they are quick to point to the fact that they are Jews. We're son of Abraham. You don't have anything to say to me. We know what we're talking about. And who are you to get off calling yourself God's son? Yeah, we're not going to stand for that. So we see this. They are outspoken. They are self-proclaimed reverent, right? They show up time and time again pointing back to the law, pointing back to Abraham. But what Christ is telling them is, if you reject me, you have rejected my father. You don't know him if you don't know me. You can't know him If you don't know me, but they again are quick to point backwards to Abraham and to Moses. And this is one of, to me, the most interesting verses. And, and, and I will ask you to flip back to chapter five of John. This is one of the most, well not verses, it's a few passages. One of the most interesting passages in, in my mind, at least when Christ and the Jews are speaking together and they continually bring up the law of Moses Verse 44, and we'll read to the the end of the chapter of uh, chapter 5, but begin in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Who's speaking here? Christ is speaking. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Who is it? Moses, my best Charlton Heston voice. (laughs) I guess that's Yul Brenner, actually. But anyway, (laughs) Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. For you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? Remember the, the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and they die? Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man does not. And he comes back and he asks, he says, please send Lazarus to tell my, the different Lazarus than what you read about a few weeks ago. Please send him to tell my brothers. And what does he tell them? They have the law and the prophets. Yeah, but if somebody would come back from the dead, they would really believe that. If they don't believe the law and the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody coming back from the dead. Does that sound familiar? Sounds very familiar, but but this is to me that that is so clear in Christ's response to the Jews, the law that you that you profess is your whole life. Don't even understand it. This great lawgiver Moses, who you hang your hat on, he's going to accuse you one day when you stand before your Maker and and have to answer for how you treated his son. Moses is not going to be there to say, well, they just misunderstood. No, Moses is going to say, that's the guy I was talking about the whole time. That's him. And you missed it. You missed him. He carries on, verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. He's making this point extremely plain throughout the book of John. You cannot separate father from son. You cannot separate son from father. I and my father are one. That's the big thing that the Jews are hung up on. That's the big thing that they're saying is blasphemous and worthy of him being executed. You can't say that. But Jesus makes the point over and over and over and over again. And fortunately for us, we have been blessed with the other half of this New Testament. And we can read in black and white or red and white. How clear that is true. The writings of Moses point to him. The writings of all of this book point to him. He is the point. You you can sum up the whole of the Old Testament by just saying, Jesus is coming. That's it. He's coming. He's going to be here. And Jesus continues to make the point that you cannot separate son from father, for they are one. Verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated again both me and my father. Now he's not saying again. This is, this is just like verse 22. He's not saying that, that they would have been sinless had he not done the signs in their presence. But if you, if, you com- if you look at both verse 22 and verse 24, you see, if I had not come and spoken to them, in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, his teachings and his works, that's pretty much all of his ministry. His entire ministry has been flatly rejected. Period. That's what he's saying. That is... The sin that he continues to point back to. You have no excuse. I have no excuse. These Jews have no excuse. One of the things that I had, I guess, known forever, or at least as long as I've been able to read, but something that really jumped out at me when we were studying the book of John in our class in, in Danville. We see many, many instances of people mad about what Jesus has done. We see many instances of, of, of Jews persecuting him for things that he's done. But do you know one thing that we do not see? And again, I, I guess I just missed this. I'm probably going to say this and you're going to be like, what do you mean you didn't see that? That's all I've seen. One thing that I have noticed, one thing that we do not see when we read John, nobody denies it. Nobody denies it. You've got, from the beginning, chapter 2, water turned to wine. Nobody says, he didn't do that. It makes them mad. They don't like it, but they don't deny it. And then we walk forward through John's gospel. Feeding 5,000 people. They like that one. They came back the next day for that one. He heals a lame man. What do they get mad about then? Hey, man, you carrying that mat. You know what day it is? Who told you to do that? They don't deny it. Man born blind. Blind. He's blind since he's been born, and now he can see. They even the, the closest they get then to, to denying it is they get his parents in and say, Hey, is this really him? Yep, that's him. Was he really blind when he was born? Yep. They don't deny it. They can't deny it. And then just a few chapters ago, chapter 11, Jesus gets word that his friend has died. He goes to Bethany, Mary and Martha. Martha meets him, hears he's coming and meets him, and what does she tell him? "Lord, if you had been here, I know my brother would not have died. But whatever you ask of God, He will give you." she believes that. So in the cemetery, when he tells everybody, "Hey, take that stone away," she goes, "Whoa, wait a minute. Um, I know what I just said, but he's been in there four days not going to be pleasant. What does he tell her? I told you you would see the glory of God. Lazarus, come out. He said it louder than that. And Lazarus, what happened? He came out. He even had to tell them, hey, unwrap him so he can walk. Nobody denied it. They didn't even try to deny it. What was their plan after Lazarus was Raised from the dead. Kill Lazarus. So he'll quit talking about it. Oh, that's a good plan. Worked well the first time. When he died from just being sick. But what's amazing to me is it's clear through John's account. Their belief in Christ is not from a lack of evidence. It's not Even from a lack of understanding, you could say that on some of the things he taught. Well, maybe they just didn't understand. No, they understood. And he was clear. So what is it? They've seen this man do these things and they don't believe him. Why not? Because they have a hard heart and a stiff neck. The same is true for us today. It's not a matter of lack of evidence. It's a matter of a hard heart. We need to kill this guy to get rid of the message. Doesn't work out. End of verse 24. Again, he repeats it. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Do not miss this, okay? He is clear in his teaching throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus' work is God's work. Jesus' words... God's voice. In Jesus, an invisible God is seen. Any attitude, good or bad, positive or negative, any attitude towards the Son is directed towards the Father. Any attitude towards the Father is directed to the Son. There is no way to pull it apart. It is impossible. To reject or to love one is to reject or to love the other one. Period. Jesus has made that plain. He gives us another clue in verse 25 as to why some of these things are happening. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So we started this Message today and talked about how first-century Christian could be encouraged as they faced persecution because they knew their master had already faced that persecution and had called them to it. And we end today. This will be our last verse with not being discouraged again. It it, it tells us here, and we've seen this again through John. If you want a fun study sometime, go through and find all the verses in John that talks about the hour that is to come. Starts in chapter 2 when Mary says, hey, Jesus, we're out of wine. What do we do? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And he says that several times as we walk through the gospel. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Well, his hour is almost here now. We get to chapter 17, and it's his prayer, and he talks about, My hour has now come, Father. But we can draw encouragement from this verse because we see, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. All of this is according to plan. Jesus, do not understand or think of Jesus to be this weak poor martyr who is the victim of a sham trial and a evil government what did he tell him nobody takes my life from me i lay it down willingly all of these things that we read about are part of the plan paul would tell us in galatians that when the fullness of time had come god sent his son So when we read John and we see all these instances of my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, it's not just a, hey, we're going to get pretty close, maybe within a few years. Oh, no. God has it dialed in. All of these things, walking toward the cross, walking toward the tomb, walking toward the resurrection, are part of God's sovereign plan that he's had since before the foundation of the world. We read about it beginning in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman is coming to crush the head of the serpent, to take care of sin. He's not caught off guard. He's not caught by surprise. This is all written, and it's being fulfilled just as God intended for it to be fulfilled. Now, a few things in this verse I want us to see, and then we'll, we'll, be, we'll be almost finished. A couple of elements, but the word that is written in their law, what is the law? What is that talking about? talking about the old Testament, their law. Who's there? The Jews talking about Jewish law, the ones who are ready to kill him that we've already looked at and said, Moses is going to be the one to condemn you. He's going to stand before God and accuse you. The old Testament lays out for us, lays out for them, lays out for us, same message, what God's righteous standard is. This is what you have to do. This is what you have to live up to. So what does that law do? It tells us not that you need a little bit of help. If you could just just be a little bit better, I think we can make it. No, he didn't tell us that. The law tells us you're not even close. And, And you don't need help. You need somebody to do it for you. You need a Savior. You need Jesus. Period. That's what the Old Testament is for. That's what it does. It teaches us God's standard. We can't meet it, but there's one coming who will. Perfectly meet it. So he talks about the law. He talks about th- these unbelieving Jews who are ready to, to kill him and, and using their own scriptures that talk about him to allow for that. And then at the, the last thing in here, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. These words are authoritative words. These words are recorded and revealed as a measure of God's grace to us, so we know how to approach our Creator. Paul would tell Timothy that the sacred writings are able to make you wise into salvation. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's writing the New Testament, so he's not talking about that. So he's talking about the Old Testament. He talks about these things being fulfilled. Psalm We're not going to read these. We don't have time, but write these down. Psalm 35, 19, Psalm 69, 4. Both of those are Psalms of David. Both of those are possible um, passages that Christ is mentioning here where it talks about enemies hating him without cause. So with this verse, we end the three relationships that, that, Isaac started a couple of weeks ago, the three relationships that are mentioned in this. We began, you began, I wasn't here two weeks ago, with um, abiding in the vine, both for life and for fruit. Loving God. Second relationship. True disciples are marked for their love for another. Love for God, love for one another. And then today, a detailed look at the hostile world into which true disciples are called to follow their master. So what do we do with this? What do we take from this? Well, we have talked about the gospel today. We've talked about the fact that we are sinners, all of us. We have talked about the fact that there is a perfect Savior. We've read about him. We've listened to him teach 11 of his disciples We've, we you will soon get to chapters 18 and 19 when the hour gets here. He's arrested. He's tried. He's beaten. And he's hung on a cross. But again, it's all being fulfilled as God intended. The time has come. The hour has come for the perfect sacrifice to be made once and for all. We hear about that. We hear that on the third day he is resurrected, offering forgiveness of sin, offering eternal life. We hear those things and we have to understand that we cannot be neutral. The gospel requires a response. We're responsible for the things that we hear and the things that we read and the things that the Holy Spirit graciously allows us to know. Our text today talks about true disciples and how persecution is the order of the day. And we could have gone through and talked specifically about things that are going on in the world. For us, in North Carolina, and America, big picture, we have it relatively easy. Persecution for us may be you get made fun of at work. That's pretty much going to be the extent of it at the moment. There are places around the world where people are meeting at this very minute and risking their very life to be able to gather together around an open Bible and talk about their Savior. But there are no uncertain terms. The world will persecute us on account of his name. It is coming. We don't need to be discouraged because, again, this is set against the backdrop of God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for one another. This, this is set in the context of love. It's the last of the three. He's already talked about it. As you continue on the end of this chapter, the beginning of the next, it'll talk some more about the Holy Spirit who will be the helper. Um, so further encouragement for the persecution that's to come. It also tells us today in the text that we've read that those of us who are in the world or from the world, which, as all of us, have no excuse for our sin. Whatever pretense, whatever dream that the world could have come up with before Christ's first coming to explain away sin, to explain away evil, that's out the window. We have this book. We have the witness of what he has taught and what he has done. And we are all without excuse. The visible son of the invisible God full of grace and truth has come to lay out his plan of redemption. So today I encourage you, if you are not a believer, if this is the first time you have heard the gospel, talk to some of the pastors who are here today. They would love to sit down with a Bible and explain to you these things. If you heard, if you heard obedience and you heard persecution and you thought, no, nah, I'm out. I don't like that. I've gotten baptized. I've walked the, 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 the aisle. I've shook the pastor's hand. I've, I've done all those things. I'm doing my duty. I'm here this morning. I even put on a mask to come to church. I am spiritual. If that is what you're staking your salvation on, you have believed the false gospel. Because that's not it. That's not it at all. And I'm sure the two pastors who are here love you and would love to be able to spend time in the Word explaining that to you. So with that, I want to just leave with this. True salvation, true discipleship, as we have read in this chapter, tells us that we are known by our fruit. tells us that we are to love one another. And it tells us to expect the same treatment our master received. Encourage one another. Build one another up. And look forward to the promises that will be read in the end of this chapter and the next few weeks as you get a first-hand account of what your Savior has done. The whole point of why we're here, you will study in the next few weeks. And it is glorious. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for our time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you promise us in your word. And Lord, even as we have spent time today reading and discussing and thinking through persecution, we can be encouraged Because we know that it's on account of your name. We can be encouraged because we know that the persecution or the obedience is on the account of your name. It is because of you. It is because of what you have done. It is because of how you came and what you did when you got here. Lord, may we be found faithful. May we read these things today. And again, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher so that we would be able to remember that he's not just in our head, but in our heart. And that having remembered them, having been obedient to them, we look more like your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.